Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. So, yes, this is a different kind of movie than we've had recently after watching several in a row about war and revolution. This is a smaller story, but not an insignificant one when we're looking at, at world history and just kind of the, the flow of ideas over time. So my first thought, I, I had seen this movie before, and I guess I had forgotten that it was a fictionalized account where they had changed all the names. And my first question was, well, why did they do that? And it seems to be basically so they could more guilt-free make it a more interesting movie because real life was not near as exciting as this movie makes the event uh, out to be. Yeah, because in... Well, we can get into it. I mean, like, the, there's some pretty major differences between the uh, the trial in the movie and the trial in real life. Not necessarily the one, like, the differences that you would think, though. Right. Like, the defendant in the movie, he's, like, an innocent teacher who, like, gets arrested and is like, oh, my gosh, why is this happening? Oh, I'm, you know, you guys are arresting me? for And in real life, the ACLU put out newspaper ads like, hey, we want to challenge this law in Tennessee who wants to come be a defendant for us. And this guy basically like signed up or they talked him into it. They were like, Oh, Hey, you want to be a defendant for this trial? You know, we want to challenge this law. And his motivation was as much, Oh yeah. You know, I, I want to challenge this law because I believe in evolution. I think, you know, free speech is important, but also he was like, well, I also want to bring, you know, all this publicity and stuff to my town because it's 1925 and the great depression or the, the economy in his town was, was bad. I guess it wasn't the Great Depression yet, but... Yes, and so the movie almost makes it seem like the spectacle was incidental to this event happening anyway. The spectacle was the goal in re in reality. Right. And to the point that, like, the real guy, the actual, you know, John Scopes, didn't even specifically remember whether or not he had taught evolution in class, but said, yes. if you want to say I did and charge me with it, I'll gladly go to trial for you guys. It was all just part of this show, which I actually was a little confused by. Was the reason that they were wanting the publicity just to boost the economy? I, I think it was a, a major reason, yeah. Because and you even you even see that a little bit in the movie. Obviously, it's uh, it's toned down and downplayed a little bit. But you know, when they're uh, they're having the meeting, like with the mayor and the and the prosecutors, I think is before the famous prosecutor signs onto the case. But they're saying, oh, you know, we because it. They're debating whether they should have a trial or not. And he said, well, you know, if, if we have this trial, you know, it'll be a really big deal. And those everybody who, you know, wants to come see the trial is going to need a place to stay. You know, they're going to need a place to eat. And then, you know, inevitably, like the very first day that the prosecutor shows up and starts making his speeches, you, you know, you have the guys selling hot dogs and the guys selling Bibles and and that's all the way through the movie. Like at the end of the movie, you know, as soon as the trial's over, the that guy comes in and is trying to sell uh, Eskimo pies to everybody in the courtroom. Oh, that's right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So let me give a brief overview of the movie, actually really quick, and then we'll kind of go more into detail with it and how it compares to what happened in, in real life. Because I'd rather focus more on the real life figures in the movie than their proxies. Sure. So yes, the teacher is arrested for teaching evolution. And 
then there's a trial and they bring it, it gets national attention immediately. And, and they, they kind of hint within the movie that it's kind of making the town a little bit of a laughing stock that this is mostly a settled thing across the country, but they bring in a prominent lawyer for the defense. And then we have actually have Gene Kelly plays a reporter from Baltimore and his paper is helping to fund the defense and even like puts up, I think his bail at one point. And then we see the trial and it's basically just kind of the debates and you know a little bit of the character stuff it's a good movie it's very interesting and definitely worth watching and kind of just highlights the debate in a way that was fairly reflective of the debate they were having in the courtroom but a lot of the things were definitely different and and kind of to your point with the teacher kind of volunteering to take one for the aclu team here in the movie they have him arrested and basically in jail during the trial and has this fiance who's the daughter of a local pastor well the fiance and the and her father are fictitious the uh, actual scopes was not incarcerated during the trial at all i kind of saw conflicting sources here he may have been tokenly arrested but was never actually held in custody and then, so the prominent lawyer and this is the name so I, I, i've heard of scopes although i didn't remember his first name and then this is a name I'd heard of, but I couldn't remember what context I really had heard it, heard it in. William Jennings Bryan, the politician from Nebraska, and he was the lawyer in reality brought in for the prosecution. It was just kind of a token thing. He was a, a big-time Democratic politician. He had actually been their party's nominee for president three times, which has never happened today because it's like kind of we kind of have this idea today that once you lose, you're just kind of tainted and we don't want you to be it again. But in, what was it, 1896, 1900, and 1908 were those the three yeah. years? And then he kind of not necessarily fell out of favor, but just, they picked someone else in 04 and then he came back in 08. But he lost all three of those elections. Well, I mean, he, he did a lot of stuff throughout his political career. Oh, he was the Secretary of State during World War One. Which is kind of like Oh, right. His... That's the big one. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because after he lost all those, then they actually win in 12 with Woodrow Wilson. And he, you know, because of his contributions in history with the party, he was uh, definitely a prominent member of the cabinet and all that during the war. So in uh, 1896, when he was the Democratic nominee for president, he was only 36 years old. So that's the youngest ever nominee over the two major parties you know when it comes down to you know the last two where they actually that's their chosen candidate and it's a record that still stands so everyone you know right now is talking about how 37 year old pete Buttigieg is just crazy young well if he ultimately got the nomination he would not even break the record for youngest democratic nominee for president which i thought was kind of interesting and then when they bring him in to be the prosecuting attorney for the trial he hadn't prosecuted a case in over 30 years it was very much a token thing and he did. It, this was an issue he felt passionately about. Uh, William Jennings Bryan was a you know a fundamentalist who you know in, in the movie and in real life has a very strict kind of letter for letter interpretation of the Bible and believes that the teaching of evolution is in conflict with that, and that a community should have the right to set you know basically the parameters of what's allowed to be taught in their schools. And then kind of tying that back in to the case itself and and Scopes volunteering to go on trial. They don't mention in the movie how basically the law had gone into effect six weeks before he was charged with violating it. So this was all very much, the, you know, the moment the, the the Butler Act, I think it was called, got passed. Yeah. The ACLU says, all right, what do we need to do to publicly challenge this and kind of put our foot down because we feel this violates the First Amendment? 
and of course separation of church and state which the movie doesn't really specifically go into it kind of attacks it from other issues and and in real life too it didn't seem like that was the way they were approaching this although i think that's you know the only way i see it well and that's in the end that's actually how that law was defeated i guess is because the the Supreme Court ruled that it violated the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment. But that was 40 years later, right? Right, yes. Right, so so yeah, again, kind of jumping to the end. So ultimately, Scopes lost the trial, and in the, and in the movie, his proxy loses the case. He's, he is convicted of, of violating it. Well, and the point, in the, I think, in the movie doesn't really hold with the actual goal of the case. The goal of the case was never to win. True. In the movie... It is like they are actually legitimately trying to win in real life. They were wanting an appeal, right? Right. Well, they wanted they wanted to just get this law into the courts so that then they could, yeah, appeal it and try and get it to a higher court who could maybe strike down the entire law altogether. Right. It was never about scopes, right? Right. 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 And then the other thing is that this was one of the first, if not the first, trial to be broadcast over the radio. Yes, I think it was the first. Yeah, yeah. And so Clarence Darrow basically used that as an opportunity to try the law in the courtroom, but also in the public as well, because, you know, he knew that everyone around the country was going to be listening to it. So it wasn't really important whether they won or not. And in fact, they knew they weren't going to win. And that wasn't the goal, but they they wanted to kind of get the word out. Right. At, at the end of the day. He violated the statute, and even the defense couldn't argue against that. There, there was this statute. He violated it. So for the jury, it was just an open and shut case. And in the in the movie, the, the judge is a little biased, but it actually sounds like in reality, he was even more biased and basically instructed the jury to find him guilty, like all but saying it. And so the jury even kind of felt like their hands were tied and like, well, yeah, within the scope of what we were asked to do, we have no choice but to say guilty. But right. we, even the jury, I think, kind of felt that it was maybe even an unjust law. Right. The judge who, in the movie, is uh, Harry Morgan, who's Colonel Potter from MASH. Yes, I had to look at I was like, oh, he looks so familiar. But, of course, this is he's a little younger here, and I never actually watched a lot of MASH, but I did recognize him for sure. Well, yeah, and of course, so Spencer Tracy plays Darrow, Gene Kelly as the reporter, who, that character way too smug to ever win anybody to his side and i i feel like especially when i also think i think that's relevant though too you talk about you know politics today and they basically say the worst thing you can do to ever try to win someone over and actually get them to change their opinion on a fundamental belief is ridicule them they will just shut down and double down on their beliefs and stop listening to you so i found him kind of amusing but at the same time that's because I believe or I agreed with him. Right. If I had been on the other side, I'd been like, screw this guy and just yeah. dismissed him. So right. he was entertaining, but man, you want you kind of wanted to slap him even though I agreed with him. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Man, that's really about all there is to the movie, isn't there? So the the scene where I'll just refer to them by their by their names in real life because I don't remember the character names, but uh, where Darrow gets uh, William Jennings Bryan on the stand. So that basically the defense calls the yes. counsel for the prosecution to the stand as a witness. That was one of the things that I was like, I didn't know anything about the Scopes Monkey trial before, other than just the name before watching the movie. But that was something I was like, okay, surely this is dramatized for the movie. But it's not. That actually happened in real life. I guess the uh, the line of questioning is actually pretty close to 
what they act, how he actually went about the questioning in the movie where he's asking him the questions like, oh, well, where did Cain's wife come from? And how long was, you know, were the days of creation? And then as soon as he got uh, William Jennings Bryan just to admit like that he didn't know like a couple things and that, oh, oh, so you don't take the Bible as literally. And then he just slaughtered him on the stand, basically. And that was huge in the, the eyes of the public who were listening over over the radio, you know, listening to Darrow just eviscerate William Jennings Bryan uh, on the stand. Like once he got him to admit one thing, he just went went all out. Yes. And it does look like that's maybe one of the instances where real life might have actually been as good or better than what we got in the movie. It says in the, in real life, they basically went back and forth for two hours on the stand mm-hmm. to the point that they actually agreed that they, they would flip. And the next day, it would be roles reversed. And uh, Brian, we get to actually question Darrow. And the judge basically just put a stop to it and said, like, okay, this is just too much theater for me. You guys just need to cut it out. And I'm going to actually can't, I'm going to cut you off now and not let you uh, go the other way with it. Yeah, the the part I remember too from the film is where he talks about, you know, what about a sponge? Does does a sponge have, you know, does a sponge think? And he's like, well, you know, if God wants a sponge to think, a sponge will think. He's like, thank you. So maybe Scopes should be allowed to think for himself as well. And it's like, oh, that was kind of like the mic drop moment there yeah and so it's interesting too so like in the in the the movie so he gets he gets really flustered and again scopes loses he's fine a nominal hundred dollars which i saw would be equivalent of about 1400 a day so not nothing but you know no jail time no anything it was all just kind of a token thing then as the courtroom is clearing jennings bryan is all flustered and still trying to give his prepared closing statement and then they they just have him die of a heart attack right there in the courtroom in the film yeah, in the movie, he's and this is this is where it kind of like blends real life and the like a fictional story, because in real life, just like in the movie, the defense, Clarence Darrow, he declines to give a closing statement because he knows, number one, he knew that the jury wasn't going to listen to him anyway. But he also knew that uh, William Jennings Bryan was going to use that opportunity to make a very long and preachy closing statement. So he just said, well, I'm not going to make a closing statement. And he knew that by Tennessee law, that meant that William Jennings Bryan was also not allowed oh, to nice. give a closing okay. statement. Okay. So just just like in the movie, he declines to give a closing statement. So the judge doesn't allow William Jennings Bryan to give his closing statement. But then in the movie, uh, William Jennings Bryan's character then grabs the radio microphone and tries to like, give his speech like over the radio um, and then dies of a heart attack right there in the courtroom, which that's that's fictionalized. But he did actually die like right after the trial was over. Five days, five or six days later. I was yeah, I was actually sad to read that. Like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, he really did die right after the trial. They say it's kind of like still kind of debated what, you know, to what extent the trial kind of, you know, triggered a, you know, the end of his life. And I would say like, man, it's the stress of it, even in real life, it's It'd be hard to argue that it didn't contribute to it in my mind because he's only in his 60s, right? Like, it'd be, yeah, so he's just 65 years old. So, man, that's, uh, that's, I don't know, I feel, I kind of felt bad for the guy after that, even though I, he, and again, the movie doesn't make him the villain per se. The movie definitely has its point of view, and you are definitely on the side of the, or put on the side of the evolutionists. I really like, though, that they made them, and I don't know if this is true, but they talk about how, the Clarence Darrow character and the William Jennings Bryan character, like, so it it shows, you know, like they're old friends and they do agree on a lot, but this is one area where they don't agree. And that's kind of 
where the conflict comes from, but they're not like, you know, it's it's not like a partisan something like that you that you would expect to see today where you have one person who falls, you know, on this issue, you know, or on on all these issues they fall on, on one side and on the other person like every single issue there. That is kind of frustrating with today's political climate where it kind of just I think we've probably talked about this before where I still feel like most people are in the middle or they're kind of center left to center right. But then the way the media and everybody else kind of presents things, you're kind of forced to pick. Oh, I don't think extreme right or extreme left. I still think there's very few people that are actually there, despite how each side paints the other as being in the extreme. But you're kind of forced to check off all the boxes on the left or all the boxes on the right, regardless of the issue. And it's like just ridiculous that why would, you know, 20 completely disparate topics all have one answer for one group of people and then another answer for another group of people without having a lot of crossover. And right. that's kind of ridiculous. And yeah, to your point, well, yeah, it didn't all, it wasn't always that way. And William Jennings Bryan is a really good example of this because, you know, you would think, Oh, well, you know, if he was, if he was you know, like this, you know, this really staunch religious guy who wanted to teach evolution in school, surely he's, you know, a conservative, but he, he wasn't, I mean, he, he ran uh, for president as, as a Democrat and he was, you know, all about pushing for the eight-hour day and the forty-hour work week. And um, he was a proponent of the government making sure that all of its citizens can earn a living wage, women's suffrage. I mean, he was oh, he, interesting, right? He was a pretty on social issues. He was a pretty well, I guess, with the notable exception of wanting to teach evolution or wanting to teach creation in schools on on pretty much every other social issue he was like a, a progressive and a pretty hardcore progressive even for the time yes and we sh- and we should know for those who don't necessarily follow that like y- you would not recognize not just the whole different people people having kind of different opinions on different issues regardless of what their party affiliation is you would not recognize the Democratic Party or Republican Party from a hundred years ago today. It's just the the platform the platforms are just completely unrecognizable. I mean, you, it's just you, you, and you can't. Even, it's not even as simple as oh, okay. Well, the South was all Democrats and now it's all Republicans. It's like yeah, 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 yeah. But even that is just the tip of the iceberg of how things have shifted. If, if you look, because we're kind of used to what the presidential you know map looks like. Okay, it's these are your red states, these are your blue states, and these are your swing states. Blah 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 blah. But you go back just. 30 years and that's not how it was and then you start looking back uh, at, yeah look at all the maps richard nixon and ronald reagan were from california oh right right like they were you know ronald reagan was one of the most conservative presidents we've ever had and also was the governor of california Right, right, because I yeah I think that California was actually maybe even mostly a red state then, but then you, of course you had exactly, the, the whole, right, but, yeah. but the whole South was blue, so it's like, yeah, and that's not we don't have time to even just go in, and I'm not an expert on it either, but it's 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 changed a lot, and yeah, that's kind of all we need to say on that. So <laughs> Darrow, so so a little bit on Darrow, so he was just kind of a he was just kind of a famous lawyer, yes, and just and just kind of an activist and a prog- and a progressive who I think had. Uh, you know, ran for some offices, was just kind of a successful lawyer and just kind of a, hate to call him an agitator, but just someone who was very active in doing what he felt was right and was good at advocating for those things. So, yeah. you know, definitely a member of the ACLU, one of the leaders there. And I want to mention, the, so another case that he was famous for, did you see this? The the Leopold, yeah, they, Leopold and Leb thing, or how do you say that? 
yeah, I don't know if it's Loeb or Lab or Loeb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, a, a murder trial, which I think they actually, they reference in the movie. They call it something different, but the William Jennings Bryan character brings up, oh, you know, you're just going to talk to the jury like in the whatever trial. I don't remember the name they give it. I don't think it, I don't think he, he actually says Leopold and Loeb, but he, he says, oh yeah, you're just going to twist their minds, which a lot of people they didn't really like the way that Clarence Darrow handled it because he was he was the uh, defense attorney for two murderers who kidnapped and murdered a 14 year old boy in Chicago. And uh, basically his whole thing was he didn't want them to uh, get the death penalty. So he right. He he I, yeah, he knew they were guilty. It looks like. Yeah, right. They had both confessed and like the OK, it was definitely them. But he just basically used the trial to talk to the jury about you know all the capital punishment is you know it's it's just it's trying to get revenge it's, it doesn't have any value in a modern society and that, that was kind of like the the way that he was coming out it was trying to get them to not be executed and he, he was successful and a lot of people really didn't like him for that even though like they were going to die in prison no matter what and actually one of them got uh got, paroled, they got paroled yeah and then died later uh the other one Murdered was uh, stabbed yeah. to death uh, 58 so cause of death 58 inflicted wounds from a razor attack yeah but i thought that case was interesting though because it's basically what two college guys who just thought they were so smart that they wanted to see if they could get away with murder or like or they were that yes. confident they could get away with murder so basically they killed a kid just yep. to get away with it and were unsuccessful we're just like oh my gosh how what what psychopaths it's almost kind of like a one of those you know a case today they where they would have pleaded like affluenza where they didn't know uh what they were doing was actually wrong but uh anyway yeah kind of a gross uh case there and they talk about it being kind of the inspiration for other stories because we've kind of heard of that idea where basically you've got the psychopaths that are trying to oh how could we get away with murder and then these guys did it in real life and it kind of inspired some other works works of fiction there and of course they're not as smart as they think they are. I mean, they didn't even have DNA back then. These guys couldn't get away with murder. Like <laughs> they had DNA, they just couldn't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, forensics. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> they, they did have DNA. They weren't made of plastic, but <laughs> right. Yeah, but like I think like one of the like the big things is like one of them like dropped their glasses. And he had this like hinge mechanism on his glasses and he was one of like, it was like a custom frame or something. Uh-huh. And he's like one of three people in Chicago that had like bought this specific kind of hinge mechanism on his glasses. It's like, what an idiot. Why would you even take those <laughs> to the murder that you're going to do? Not to get off the rails. I did think it was interesting. This is just a little bit of trivia here. They, the defense actually asked novelist H.G. Wells if he would come and speak for the defense. But he was like, was he too busy uh, chasing Jack the Ripper? Or? <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> uh, well, no, this was uh, this was uh, 1925. So he was uh, you right. know, happily married with his wife from San Francisco. <laughs> That's uh, true. From the yeah, future. Yeah, yeah. So, but no, he was basically just like, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> and uh, so let's actually kind of then spend the last little bit of this talking more broadly about this kind of issue. And. We can let you know. We can try to stay fairly, you know, in the center as far as and just kind of speak of this uh, intellectually without getting uh, too much into our personal opinions. So, religion and politics specifically. So, aside from this, is something, I, to my understanding, was always kind of meant to be relegated to just your personal beliefs. And faith has its place, but not necessarily in influencing public policy. Right. Well, and even 
in your personal life, I don't think that your faith and your belief in what it like your scientific beliefs necessarily have to clash with each other. One is your views on what is natural, you know, science, and your other, your other, the other is your views on what is supernatural. So they don't necessarily have to conflict with each other, right? Because they're in different realms. They're right. They're in different realms. And I guess, and and I think that's part of the frustrating part. So yes, this movie is dealing specifically with evolution, but I think he mentions in the film, well we're not why don't we dealing with heliocentrism and you know galileo and stuff it's like basically the church challenged that too despite science having evidence and church just not wanting to alter their existing structure and that does end up being my issue with all of this whether it's an issue we have today or back then is i feel like all too often the fundamentalist side of this argument starts with the answer they want and then works from there to justify it versus science is approaching with questions right and that's not right that's not what science is you don't start from a conclusion and then cherry pick facts that support that right right despite some people you know saying you know some people claiming that's what science does i think it's just because their science is finding answers that are contrary to their pre-decided beliefs and and again i think there are times where then science can't hold on to ideas too long after you know maybe a, a new idea does come in they re- reject it out of hand when you know evidence does change anyway so yeah it is all kind of frustrating and, and for me i think you know i, I was have thought that, you know the separation of church and state is very important and what the movie doesn't get into specifically it all comes back to you know this idea of freedom in the united states and yes you have the freedom to believe whatever you want to believe to hold whatever faith you want to hold but the public and other citizens have the freedom from your faith affecting their lives. And even if it's a 90% to 10% thing, so if a community is 90, 95% all one faith, that 5% still has the right not to have the 95% beliefs forced onto them. Right. And when it comes to public policy, you don't make public policy based on your religion you make public policy based on the best information available and if you have 99.9 percent of biologists or archaeologists geologists saying your account of how the universe and the world came into being is not accurate based on all of this scientific evidence maybe we're not going to teach that in schools anymore we're going to teach all of this scientific evidence. Right. It's the difference between academics and spirituality. And we're kind of talking in circles here, but there's not meant to be an overlap. And I guess maybe there's some inevitable contradictions, but... But there's also plenty of biologists and scientists who are Christian or Jewish or Muslim. Like, they also yes. hold their religious faith as yes. well. It doesn't necessarily have to conflict. I mean, was, I mean, Einstein in particular it was very strong in his faith, right? Yeah, well, and, and even on the flip side, there's plenty of people who would self-describe as an atheist who think that the world is flat. Is true so as well. just because you are one, you know, just because your, your spiritual views point one way doesn't mean that your scientific views are going to point a certain way correct so yes i always just come down to just keep at keep an open mind keep asking questions and be excellent to each other to bring bill and ted's back into all of this <laughs> exactly exactly 
if listeners want to learn more, maybe not necessarily learn more, but have this the Scopes Monkey Trial presented in a a funnier way, uh, <laughs> they could check out the the Drunk History episode that deals with the Scopes Monkey Trial with uh, Jack McBriar as Clarence Darrow and uh, Bradley Whitford as William Jennings Bryan. It's hilarious. I'm gonna have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, if, I, I think if you if you go on YouTube and just type in Scopes Monkey Trial, I think it's actually the first video. <laughs> <laughs> Without adding the drunk history part. <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, so, okay, uh, the ACLU was only established about five years before this. And as I mentioned on the episode about Helen Keller, she was one of the founding members of the ACLU. Let's talk about it briefly. So today... The ACLU is seen as having a liberal bias. Now, the liberal in me would say that's because the truth has a liberal bias. But <laughs> but the 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 operational, you know, philosophy of the ACLU is to defend the Bill of Rights. So we have, you know, right. the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the ACLU is a nonprofit organization that advocates for those. And I would say, in in fairness, that I think the reason it has a liberal bias is because it doesn't necessarily advocate as passionately for the Second Amendment as it does for the others. Not that it's against the Second Amendment. It does include, I think, that as part of its purview. But you can argue that the Second Amendment has its, all, its whole other thing advocating for it and doesn't need the ACLU's help. And I don't think ACLU has ever advocated against you know, the Second Amendment, they just kind of tend to focus on right. well, First Amendment specifically. It tends to be the one right. I think they fight for. But then, you know, there would definitely yes. be others, that I'm sure, that would that would come up. But not that I can name all 10. But yes, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom from religion. You know, if, you know, if someone wants to put up the Ten Commandments, you know, on a public building, the ACLU might step in. Of course, then you also have today the uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation that kind of focuses specifically on on those kinds of things. And again, I have no problem with people believing whatever they want to believe or holding whatever faith. But once you're proselytizing on the public dime, that's inappropriate. It's just fundamentally inappropriate to, I think, what this country was built on. And it's, you know, it's you had the freedom of expression and the freedom of religion. And everyone else has the freedom from your religion and the rights of their own beliefs without public money being used to influence them. So when public money is being used for a nativity scene... Well, why can't that public money be used for, I'd say, a picture of Muhammad, but you can't have pictures of Muhammad. But you know what I'm saying. Right. Or they say, well, if you're going to spend a money, you know, you're going to spend public money on a nativity scene or a Ten Commandments section of your courthouse, then maybe to be fair, you should also spend some of that money to uh, allow judges to marry same-sex couples. It's that that kind of give and take. That's yeah. probably a bad example because they're they're not equivocating. Like they're not saying, "Oh, well, we can have it," you know, both ways. They're saying, right. "No, religion, you know, maybe maybe keep that out of government." But then they're also pro gay rights, LGBT, you know, rights in general, trans rights. Within the context of the bill of the bill of rights, though, I mean, because if these freedoms right, are being right. denied, yeah, yeah, yes, right. They a, a lot of times court cases involving discrimination. Um, against women, against LGBT people, against minorities. Usually, uh, the ACLU supports them, provides them lawyers directly. Right, which goes back to equal protection under the law, which is what, the 14th Amendment, if I'm guessing off the top of my head? Yes, anyway, 
Tune back in uh, next week, and we will be going over to Germany in the Weimar Republic, you know, that inter- interstitial period between World War One and World War Two in Germany, with the 1972 Best Picture nominee, Cabaret, starring Liza Minnelli and Michael York. <laughs> <laughs>